I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Thomas Derue of Chateau Palmer on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Nice to see you. Thank you. So you were born in Bordeaux. I was born in Bordeaux uh, 44 years ago, yes, from uh, an Italian mother and a French father. And then you went to school for biology. I went to school for, uh, for biology. That was my passion when I was a kid. And um, yeah, and that was the start for a kind of biology that is more related to a vineyard and to winemaking. How did it all come about that you ended up getting into the wine track? Well, you know, um, being in Bordeaux as a a kid gave me a lot of exposure to great wines. And when I was 16, uh, you know, as every kid of my age, I wanted to experience alcohol, you know, even if, well, it's not like here, it's not illegal, but it's not really recommended. And my best friend's father had um, a wonderful cellar. So where's my friend? We went there several times to try to find bottles of wine and to drink it. Was no idea to what it was. At one point, his father uh, saw that few bottles were missing in the cellar. Smart guy. Yeah, very smart guy. And, and well, he had a good knowledge of his, of his own cellar. Uh, I remember that very precisely. Uh, he said, uh, well, the two of you, come here, please. We have a problem here. I know that uh, there are several bottles missing in my cellar. And I suppose that uh, it's because of you. And it's not right. It's not right because you have no idea what you're drinking. So we better taste those wines together. And that was the first time I was exposed to uh, the diversity of wines. And uh, it took me a lot of time to really understand that wine or wines were not just a yellow beverage or red beverage. It was uh, something much more complex. It was um, beautiful links to lands, to people. It was a link to time too, because of course, uh, young wine and old wine uh, are completely different. And it really became a passion for me, really a passion. And you worked at Leo Villascaz for a bit as a kind of stagiaire. Yes. Leo Villascaz was my first real experience in a vineyard. It was in 1994. I spent six months there when uh, Michel Delon was in charge. The older Delon. The older Delon. And my mission was to really study um, a different way to uh, protect the vineyard against disease. We call it in French, lutte raisonnée. And it was fantastic because, of course, you can imagine I was 24 years old and first time in a vineyard and not the other vineyard. It was Léoville Lascaz, the most famous uh, Saint-Julien. So, um, yeah, and th- that's something that is really now in my blood. And uh, so I have a very um, a strong relationship with Léoville Lascaz and with the Delon family, of course. And eventually you ended up in Hungary. In February 1996, I went to Tokai in uh, northeast of Hungary. Uh, worked there for uh, a year and a half uh, with a very specific mission. 
I worked for two properties named Megier and Paisoche, owned by French people at that time. And um, they had a very specific problem of stability in the bottle. So I went there to rebuild or reorganize all the bottling process, which is not the funniest part of winemaking, of course. But it was a wonderful experience for me, uh, being 26 years old at that time. And, um, and you can imagine 1996, Hungary, it was just a few years after the communism was uh, finished. And um, What did that look like on the ground? Uh, it was quiet. <laughs> and the most difficult thing is, uh, was that nobody really spoke English. So uh, I had to learn a little bit of Hungarian to be able to work with the people there. And, you know, of course, well, the technical side of it was quite interesting, but what I really um, keep from this experience today is uh, the human relationship. Hungarian people from Tokai are not the easiest people to, to build a relationship with. It takes several months, but once it's built, it's solid. And so, um, well, no, we, we did a lot of, of great things there. I was just... Therefore, one harvest, 1996. And it was very interesting because uh, then, uh, that's another thing. Uh, the Tokai production, the, the Asu, the, um, the sweet wines production, winemaking is very unique. Uh, was uh, dry, dry white wine first, and then those noble berries that you mix with the dry white wine, you press again, and you do a second alcoholic fermentation. There are not a, a lot of uh, other examples like that. So um, that was a beautiful experience, beautiful experience. In a way, did it make you think differently about what must was or what it could be? Or What I learned a lot from this experience was, in terms of winemaking, was really all the yeast management. Because, you know, when you have... Um, a red wine, you know, the fermentation is never very difficult. There was two alcoholic fermentation, was a lot of sugar, uh, high acidity. You really have to be very careful in what you do and to manage fermentation very seriously. So that's something I learned a lot. And then you came back and you worked again in Bordeaux at Cline. Yes. I, so I came back uh, in June 1997 and worked uh, for the same ownership, so the people who own Paisos and Meguer, and uh, they had different activities. Uh, one of it was uh, to manage Clinet, beautiful property in, um, in Pomerol. So there you're on the right bank for the first time. Yes. Uh, and I was, you know, in between the right bank, Pomerol, and the Entre-de-Mers, Chateau Jonquière, uh, which was really the, the base of, uh, of all the, um, the activity. It was very interesting. I had the chance to work a little bit with Jean-Michel Arcot, who unfortunately passed away in 2001. He had a very modern approach of winemaking, very ripe fruit, a lot of extraction. That was, you know, quite fashionable at that time. And so, yeah, again, another vision. And um, it helped to build my understanding of winemaking. And then you took a detour to southern France. Yes. You know, coming back from Hungary... I worked one year in Bordeaux with the Arcot team. And then I had a fabulous opportunity to move from Bordeaux to the Languedoc and to work for the Mondavi family. By chance, I met in uh, 1998 David Pearson, who is today the Opus One CEO. But at that time, he was uh, responsible for the Mondavi activity in Languedoc, in South of France. When they were trying to establish a... And the state there. Yes, they, they had uh, they had two projects. One was to uh, consolidate all the supply for uh, Vichon Mediterranean, which was a, a brand of uh, Vin de Pays d'Oc, wine from the Languedoc. And uh, the other project was to find a way to establish their own winery. And so um, I worked with David to, uh, for three years. We we worked on Vichon, of course. But we really try to, to understand what would be the best project in Languedoc. And um, we made a lot of, uh, of studies. And our first, of course, our first approach, our first idea was to, to understand what winery uh, would be for sale, a winery with a great potential. And so we had several options. And uh, we, we discussed with uh, Aimé Guibert, the owner of Domas Gassac, to see um, if we could find a deal because he told us that uh, he wanted to sell. 
and uh, the Mandavis uh, made a very, very nice offer. And uh, he said, well, I would sell, but for a little bit more than that. And so the Mandavi said, well, no, in that case, we will stop the discussion with you. And after this, um, this try, was David who said, well, there are not a lot of other names that could be attractive enough for the Mandavis. So the other option would be to uh, start a vineyard from scratch. And uh, we look for good uh, locations. We found Thevrolds. Our challenge was to convince the Mandavis, Tim and Michael, that a spot that we would recommend uh, would be a great one. And uh, we thought that the easiest way to convince them was to find a spot with neighbors that were producing fantastic wines. And in between the Masgasac and another fabulous wine from the Languedoc named La Grange des Pères, uh, we found this beautiful area named Le Massif de l'Arboussas that was, you know, 60 or 70 years ago before the Second World War, a farming land, but it was n when we found it, it was more uh, like a, not really a forest. We call it uh, Garrigue in French. Uh, and we thought, well, that would be a very beautiful occasion to establish uh, our uh, brand new vineyards. Those lands were not private lands. They were owned by the commune Anyan, the little town where Domasgasak is located. And so we started to, um, to discuss with the mayor, the mayor of, of Anyan, to see what, what, could be, what could be done. And he was very optimistic. We had two problems. One was Aimé Guibert, the owner of Domasgasak, who probably thought, well, I missed a beautiful opportunity to sell Damasgasak for a lot of money. And now they will build a vineyard from scratch. It is unacceptable for me. He was very jealous. So uh, he really uh, decided to fight against this project. Why have another competitor, really? You know. That's it. And the other problem is a typical French stupidity. This project became a political fight between left and right, you know. And, uh, and in the end, it became so stupid that the Mandavis, this, because it was not, you know, a huge economical project for, for right, them. It right. was just, you know, um, um, a nice thing to do. And they said, well, okay, that's enough. Let's stop it and let's do something else. Uh, and that was, um, that was April or May 2001. And you'd probably put a lot of work into finding oh, yeah. that place. A lot of work and a lot of passion. It was a fantastic project. And, you know, in a lifetime, you don't have a lot of opportunity, especially in the old world in France, to build a vineyard from scratch. To do it from scratch, the way you think it should be done. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, hard for David and hard for me to, to decide that it was not possible. Uh, but that's the way it was. And... Uh, and and so yeah, it finished there. Um, and you had to wonder probably, well, what happens to me now? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But I, I I did not really have have the time to to think about it because uh, in April two thousand and one, I received a phone call from uh, Tim Mandavi. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he said, um, "Well, uh, I think you know our project in Anyan uh, will not go through." Uh, but I have um, something I would like to discuss with you. And he told me that, as I, as I knew, they were part owners of a beautiful property in Tuscany named Ornelaya. I've heard of that place. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, that the, the winemaker the, um, was um, living. And, uh, and Tim knew that I was half Italian, uh, speaking Italian. And he said, well, that would be... It would be nice if you could go there to take care of the, all the production uh, aspect of Ornelaya. Because he knew you. He knew you'd put in some effort for the company already, and he knew your mom was Italian. Yeah. And we had a very good relationship. So even if I was young, um, and, and that's what I love uh, with American people, you know, it's very different from our country. Um, you can be young, old, uh, black, white, or yellow. If you're good, you're good. If you're not good, you're not good. And so Tim said, well, Think about it, and um, if you want to, you can go there. 
How long did it take you to think about it? Uh, half a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> half a second. So um, here I am, July 01. I, I leave Montpellier um, to go to Tuscany. And, and for me, it was kind of a dream because um, my mother is from uh, Modena in Emilia-Romagna, known for uh, balsamic vinegar, for cars, not really for wines. But there is a, a great production of Lambrusco, which is not a beautiful wine, but uh, I mean, it's a genuine wine. And my grandfather, and I did not really know him, he passed away when I was a kid, very young, had um, a big vineyard a long time ago. So for me to be able to go back to Italy to make wine was a fantastic thing. And not in Modena to make Lambrusco, but in Tuscany and in Bulgari to make one of the greatest wine of Italy. What a dream. So, well, yeah, it turned out to be a fabulous opportunity. And, uh, and so I went there with uh, a lot of uh, hope, a lot of um, passion and a lot of pleasure. Because you arrive in July 2001, mm -hmm. and then subsequently would be the 01 vintage in many ways that would kind of make your career there because it was mm -hmm. highly touted when it mm -hmm. came out by the critics, or at least mm -hmm. that's the way I saw it. Yeah. You know, you need chance in life, or luck, you would say. And uh, I was very lucky because, of course, when I arrived in July in Bulgari, most of the, the work was already done in the vineyard. And it was very well done because uh, the vineyard manager at that time was a very good one. Well, and, and the actual one is a very good one too. But, you know, the, the condition of the, of the vineyard was good. And, and we had a beautiful summer and a beautiful September. So uh, I knew, you know, from the beginning that we would have a nice vintage. And something was interesting, uh, you know, uh, because before my time in Nornelaya, the, the cellar and the vineyard were managed by two people. And separately. So, one separately, guy did yeah. vineyards, another yes. guy did cellar. And as, as often in that case, there are two visions. The, the vision uh, in Nordenlaya was always that the, the winemaker was a little bit scared to bring in fruit with uh, a very high level of sugar because it's a little bit more difficult to ferment. When the vineyard manager wanted to to have a riper fruit and ripe tannins. So my approach, and maybe because I was very young at that time and didn't really think about it, was really to be very concentrated on what we call phenolic ripeness, tannin ripeness. And I remember precisely for the Maceto block, the vineyard manager wanted to harvest, and I said, no, <laughs> it's not ready. We have to wait longer. And, uh, and we waited a little bit longer and we harvested the Maceto block around the 70s or the 18th of, of September. Fully ripe fruit, very concentrated, with a beautiful tannin structure, high level of alcohol, but beautiful acidity. And all those components was what I wanted to, to make a balanced wine. And so with the luck of the, of the weather and the quality of the vintage, um, we were able to produce two Great wine, I think. Uh, Onelaya and Maceto uh, 01. Did you feel like you were getting a different quality of acidity? Was the acidity different from these grapes than you might have experienced working with the similar grapes in Bordeaux? What was different, what is different in Bulgari is that the concentration or the quantity of tannin is higher than in Bordeaux. The alcohol level is also higher because to have ripe tannin you need to push um, the ripeness. The chance, or, or, or what is very important, is that because, because of the location of the vineyard next to the sea, the acidity is always nice. So to build a balanced wine with this level of alcohol, you need acidity and you have it naturally, but you need also structure. It's very important. If you don't have the structure, uh, you will feel the alcohol too much. Maceto 01 must be 15 plus alcohol, uh, but the acidity is beautiful, and we did a lot of extraction to balance this alcohol. So, yeah, it was a, a different winemaking approach than the one I experienced before in, in, in the, in the ride bank in Bordeaux. As a young man, 
did you feel differently than you do now as an older man in terms of your approach to making a wine? Were you wanting to maybe make a statement at that time where you had something to prove maybe? Mm -hmm. Or what do you think now that several years have passed? Mm -hmm. I definitely had something to prove. When you're young, the easiest thing to do to prove something is to build a blockbuster, to make big wine. I was lucky enough to be in a situation where a big wine was the only option. That's what happened anyway, between yeah. the vineyard manager, the weather conditions, and the place. Yes. I mean, uh, there's no way a uh, Maceto uh, can be uh, elegant as uh, Margot or as uh, Chambol Musigny. No, it, it, it's a big wine. That's the way it is. So, so, yes, of course, I had to prove something. I tried to build a big wine, but it worked okay because that was the, the profile of, of this place. Of course, where I am today, it's a very different approach. And um, I, I think we'll talk about Palmer a little bit later, but uh, I understood that uh, the approach uh, in Palmer uh, should be uh, very different when I joined in 04. It, it was not all about extraction. It was about balance. When I've gone back and tasted Ornelia verticals, which I've done more for Ornelia than for Macetto, sometimes I notice that the wines taste denser post-01 than they do pre-01. Would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, probably. O1 is a good example. O2, O3, uh, I had the O2 the other day, uh, are, are dense, but are a little bit um, different because O2 was a really wet vintage, O3 really hot. And then, you know, O4, O5, they are, they are big wines. But still, I think they're not, they're not flabby wines. They are balanced wine, big but balanced. And that's one of the magic of uh, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, especially in the Bulgaria re region. They can be powerful and, and balanced at the same time. And I feel like during your tenure at Ornelia, that was probably your first opportunity to sort of travel the world to different markets mm -hmm. and be introduced to them and meet with buyers. Because that's when I met you. And you seemed quite happy at that time. Mm -hmm. You were a content guy who had a lot going on, smart guy, mm -hmm. as you still are. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. you know, <laughs> if not wiser now, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, that was probably your first opportunity to travel the world and meet with buyers. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like for you? Well, it was something new because uh, that was not my my background or uh, or, or neither my... Uh, my my knowledge, my know-how, uh, but mm, but of course, I mean, when you work for an American company, uh, you have to be exposed uh, as the winemaker to uh, to the market, and so I started to travel mostly here in America, but also a little bit in Europe, Germany, uh, Austria, etc. And I loved it. I loved it because um, it's important to make wines. It's important to be in the vineyard, but it's also important to listen to the wine lovers because in the end you don't make the wine for yourself you make the wine for the wine lovers and to be able to taste them uh, with the lovers the wine lovers it's it's important and it can also influence your wine making you know um so yeah that was that was a fantastic experience and um and uh, it helped me a lot and of course it 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 still helped me uh today how did you evolve the property over the time that you were there? Well, you know, uh, my experience in Ornelaya is a short one, just three years. So you don't have a lot of uh, time in three years to make uh, a, a revolution. So, so uh, you had one, two, and three, and those yes. are pretty different, as yes. you mentioned already. Yes, yes. So, no, I, I think I, I worked a little bit on details. I worked a little bit on, um, on differentiation um in a winemaking approach from a block to another. We, we spend uh, with the team there a lot of time to taste the vats and to adapt the extraction to each single vat. We worked also uh, a little bit, uh, quite, a, quite a bit on the, on the grip receiving uh, area uh, to be more precise in, our, in a, all our sorting approach. And I worked a lot also on the, um, on the press wines uh, with uh, vertical presses and a better selection. Uh, of the press. I wonder almost uh, if that's maybe what I'm responding to when I find a deeper concentration in the wines, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. you know, from that period. Because press wine, 
and how you would treat it might affect the texture of of the wine, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, and that's something I learned in Bordeaux, and I was able to bring in Ornelia. If you have the time, the tools to make a great selection with the pressed wines, it can be very helpful when you build the wine, when you blend all the components together. And one day someone called you. Yeah. So uh, that was in December 2003. I was with uh, uh, Giovanni Guerres da Filicania, who was the uh, Frescobaldi and Ornelia CEO. We were together in Bordeaux uh, because we wanted to, to discuss with different uh, chateau owners and also negociants to see what was their policy to hold uh, back vintages. And we were together in the center of Bordeaux when I received the phone call. And this, uh, and the guy on the phone told me, well, uh, you don't know me. I'm uh, Monsieur blah, blah, blah. I'll be very quick. I'm looking for um, the next boss of one of the top 10 uh, Bordeaux Chateau, and I would like to meet you. So I was with Giovanni, and I said, well, whoa, whoa, uh, can I call you back? <laughs> and so... Uh, Mom, is that you? I'm going to need to call you back a bit later. Can you give me five minutes? <laughs> that was so funny. And, uh, and so uh, in the evening, I, I called him back. And he said, yeah, well, okay. As I told you, uh, I would like to meet you. Uh, and I said, uh, well, uh, listen, uh, I'm 33 years old. I'm in the production side. I'm not a manager. I'm not a finance guy. I'm not a business guy. I don't think I'm the right one. I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, I would like to meet you anyway. Because sometimes people who run Bordeaux estates aren't necessarily production guy no, side. Exactly. Most, most of the, especially at that time, most of the uh, chateau uh, managing directors uh, were businessmen. And so um, he said, well, I want to meet you anywhere. Okay, fine. And uh, I said, there's nothing to lose. Uh, I'm the happiest man of the world in, in Tuscany. But, you know, to be interviewed is always a good exercise. And so... Uh, That's what we believe here at the show. <laughs> okay, so you see. Uh, and so we had uh, an appointment the 26th of December for lunch. And uh, I went there, you know, just wearing a jean, a pair of jeans. So I don't care. I mean, just, just for fun, just... And we had a very good time. It was low stress for you. Very low stress. And at, at the end of the lunch, he said, well, mm, very interesting. Uh, let me tell you, uh, the, the chateau I'm looking uh, the manager for is Chateau Palmer. Gloops. <laughs> it became a little bit different. So even if I said, well, it's not for me, Palmer, wow. Let's consider it. <laughs> uh, and he said, um, and... You're probably too young, uh, but I like uh, the idea that uh, you, you are a winemaker, that uh, you, you were born in Bordeaux, and that you have an international uh, background with the Mondavis and Italy. I would like you to meet two of the owners. And I said, okay, why not? So um, February, coming back from uh, the US uh, market, I stopped in Paris. Wear a jacket and a tie this time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and went for the interview with two of the owners. And it went, um, it went quite well. We had a, a very nice time. What did they tell you? Well, just, just asked me um, what was my background, uh, why I was uh, in the wine business. And, uh, and you, know, you know, being young and being really passionate, um, it was easy to to tell them that um, wine was my life, um, that Ornelaya was a dream, and that Chateau Palmer uh, is the dream of any winemaker uh, on the planet. Especially one that was born in Bordeaux. Exactly. Right? I mean, I remember the, you know, uh, the chateau when I was a kid, it was like the Walt Disney, the fairy tale chateaus, etc. So yeah, Palmer is really something very special. And then the, they asked me to make... Um, a tasting, so I had a blind tasting with five wines, and they told me, um, well, here, five wines, two, they're all from the same vintage, uh, two from the same estate on the left bank, two from the same estate on the right bank, and then there is a pirate. Oh. 
Please do. And unfortunately, one of the wine was corked. And they said, well, it's corked, but I don't, we don't have another bottle, so you have to play with it. Okay, thank you. Wow, that's a, <laughs> a real curveball kind yeah. of test there. And it went quite okay. I, f- I found the vintage. Um, it was 1998. Uh, I find the two wine from the left bank, the first wine, the second, the second wine. Uh, um, they were from Le Villascaz. I didn't find Le Villascaz, but those are the left bank, probably um, Saint-Julien, Pauillac. Huh? It's like they knew you. Yeah. yeah. Like, see if you can identify yeah. <laughs> the harvest you were at. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the right bank was Angelus and Le Carillon, but I, I just, uh, and, and the pirate was Obey. Um, but, uh, it, was, it was a very interesting tasting. That's man. a good pirate, I think. Yeah, a very, very good pirate. To but, that. Yeah, you know, very mix. good pirate. So, well, it went okay. Um, and then uh, they asked me to go for another interview with all the board members, so eight people. It was in March. And at the end of it, they were crazy enough to, uh, to ask me to come. So I went back to Italy. Uh, my wife is American. She's from California. And, uh, you know, we were very happy in Tuscany. And so I told her, well, I think, you know. <laughs> Better buy a jacket. Yeah. I think, you know, um, Tuscany uh, is behind us. Uh, we'll have to go to Bordeaux. And she started to cry, you know. Uh, for her, uh, Tuscany was a dream. And Bordeaux was not really a dream. But um, we moved to Bordeaux, and we arrived there in June '04. I studied my my work at Palma. What did they want from you? I mean, what did they tell you that they wanted? They wanted to put the estate a little bit more on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, all the work um, done until '04 was a great one. The '83 is so good. '83 is one of the legends of the vintage in Bordeaux. Um, 61 is another legend. 89 is a, is a fantastic wine. Uh, and, and, and there are a lot of examples. 1998, of course. Um, but they just wanted to, to do more. and um, Maybe not be so much of an insider's wine. Because it was kind of a Bordeaux insider's wine yeah, at that time. Yeah. Like an overachiever that an insider would think about. You're right. You're totally right. So, so you know, my challenge was and still is to... Um, to understand the estate better and better, to respect the style of it, to, res- to respect the identity, but to try to go uh, deeper and deeper in the, um, in the interpretation of this land. You know, and, and, and I think the, the main difference in the end between an Ornelaya and a Palma, a Chateau Palma, is that if you think about it, the first v- uh, vineyard in Ornelaya were planted in 1981. Very new. They're still everything to be built. There's not an established style. Chateau Palmer, first vineyard probably uh, planted in uh, 1600 something, more than 400 years of winemaking, a very precise established style that has to be respected with fantastic uh, vintages in the past. And the challenge is not to to revolutionize everything is really to go deeper and to fine tune a lot of little things. And so it takes a longer time. And that's why after 10 years now, I'm not done. And there are still a lot of things to do for the next 10 years, I hope. But it must be nice 10 years on to see the wines that you made with a decade of age on them. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I think, you know, over, over the years, what we have achieved is more precision and more consistency in the, in the different vintages. And I, I, I have a lot of hope for the, for the future uh, because um, in 08, uh, we started to make a big move in our uh, viticulture. And uh, I think it will, um, it will help to be even more precise in the future. A lot of people I talk to say, well, if you want to think about farming in Bordeaux, who's at the forefront? Palmer. Huh. Well, that's that's very nice of them. <laughs> In terms of the famous estates, at least. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. Um, in uh, 2007, 2008, we we started to, uh, a, a very interesting study. We uh, and, and there are different layers. The first layer is to go uh, much more into details to know the terroir, so a pedological analysis was a lot of diff- different tools like connectivity measurement, et cetera, et cetera. So that gave us the picture 
of the terroir, the thing that will never move. And then we used infrared pictures to understand the vigor the, of the vineyard and to see the differences from a block to another. And we try to understand why uh, those differences by studying all the nitrogen alimentation feeding and all the, the water stress. And crossing all those uh, elements, uh, we were able to have a very, very precise understanding of our 55 hectares. And then by knowing that, we thought, well, we should not grow the vineyard the same everywhere because we have different situations. So instead to use the very traditional method that is still used in the Medoc, plowing and unplowing the soil four times a year, we decided to use different types of cover crop. Just an example. Too much nitrogen in the soil give a little bit too much vigor to a vineyard. So you put a cover crop, especially in spring, when the vine will start to grow and um, to compete the nitrogen, the cover crop, you know, will be appropriate. And then in June, um, when the water stress starts, you remove the cover crop to make sure that uh, the, the vineyard will not suffer. At the opposite, if the problem is not nitrogen, but water, too much water in the soil, you put a cover crop, but you keep it, not just in the spring, but also in the summer, unless the weather is very, very dry, and then you remove it. So we find a way to, to put together between you know, 10 and 15 different types of cover crops and 10 or 15 types of um, growing methods for different types of vineyards. And um, it helped us to, to improve a lot um, the level uh, of different blocks. So in a way, a lot of it came down to moisture control and nitrogen control in an era of climate change. You're right. You're right. Uh, it, it's exactly what happened. And that was a very important move. The other move was 2008-2009. We thought, well, we should experiment organic farming and biodynamic farming. Organic, because it's not easy in Bordeaux to grow vineyards without chemicals. Let's see what we can do. And why would that be? Rot? Or what would be not easy about it? Oh, because, you know, uh, in Bordeaux, we have um, wet conditions, especially in, in spring, very often. And there is a lot of uh, mildew pressure. And um, without all the chemicals, just using copper, it's a little bit challenging. You know, copper, you spray, it's okay. You, you have a, a, rain, a rainfall, you have to spray again. Uh, so... It's, it's, of course, much easier to use a chemical that will be in the vine for 14 days, no matter what. So that was the idea. Let's see what we can do uh, or what happens if we use just natural product. The other side of it was biodynamic. We said, well, biodynamic? Rudolf Steiner? We don't understand the clue. The best way to have an idea of what it is is to experiment it. So uh, 08, 09, we put one actor together with another actor just side by side, um, being um, classic. And we started the process to learn. It went okay. The year after, we went up to three actors. And in August 2010, I remember that very precisely, we were in the vineyard with uh, Sabrina Pernet, who was the technical director uh, at Palma, uh, speaking chatting, we saw that organic and biodynamic was a very interesting move and that we really should go up to the end or, you know, further to be 100% uh, organic. What were and you seeing to lead you to that conclusion? Different things. First things was it is doable. If we take the time to prepare the vineyard, to balance the vigor, it is doable to grow a vineyard with those techniques in Bordeaux. Second thing was, we cannot continue to use chemicals because it will destroy the terroir in 15, 60, or, or maybe less years. Third thing, we cannot continue to expose our workers to those products because they are dangerous. And last thing was, 
we have a feeling that organic farming and biodynamic farming could help us to produce wines that will be much closer to their origin, to their soil, or to the soil where the, the, the fruit are produced. All that were good arguments to not to make a decision because we, we are not the owners, but to think that we should do that. And then it took us several months to convince the, the Chateau Palmer owner to take this direction. But they're smart. Uh, they understood our arguments and they said, okay, do it, but do it well. And you're not allowed to lose a crop. I said, okay, we're not allowed to lose a crop. And um, if we think we will, we will go back to the, um, to the old system. 2011, we had 12 hectares. 2012, 2013, 33 hectares. 2013 was a challenging vintage at Bordeaux. Wet spring, difficult conditions, a lot of mildew pressure. We didn't lose anything on the organic plots compared to the on the biodynamic plots compared to the, to the classic ones. And we thought, well, now we're ready. After the 2013 harvest, 100% of the vineyards became biodynamic. Which is something like 58 hectares? 55, like 55. 55. Yeah, yeah. So uh, here we are. It's something really, really strong. And um, I told you the reason why we made this move. I think there are now different other things that are uh, important. One thing is, you know, if you are a small vigneron in Burgundy with uh, two or three hectares, you decide to go biodynamic, this is your own decision. There's nobody to convince. When you have 55 hectares with uh, 45 people working on the estate, you cannot do it by yourself. You have to convince everybody. We took the time to convince everybody. Not just the owners, but the workers. The workers. We took the time to convince, of course, the owners to make the decision, but also the workers to make the job. You know, when you ask a worker to wake up at four in the morning, to go in the vineyard, spraying by hand the 500 preparation, if he does not think it's a good thing, it will not do it. So we did it, it worked okay, and now they are all very, very proud to be biodynamic because they know it's good for the, um, the place where they live, where they work. It's also very good for their health. And they're also very proud because they feel that uh, we are pioneers in a way, in the, even if we're not, but we are pioneers because we we are one of the few properties in the Medoc who made the move totally. Everybody in the Medoc have vineyards in uh, biodynamic, using biodynamic techniques. Everybody. There are experiments everywhere. But it's a big decision to go 100%. We were one of the first with, with you know, Ponte Canet, with Geoffroy Vivas, with Ferrier. There are others. Uh, but I'm, I'm really convinced that in a very short period of time, most of the classified growth uh, will be at least organic and maybe biodynamic for, for those who think it's a good thing. Seems like organics vary within the, the sites of most of the, the big names. Yeah. I think. yeah. At least they're thinking about it. Seems like. You know. There's no choice. There's no choice. There's no choice to to preserve the place, to preserve the terroir. There's no choice just because, I mean, it is impossible to understand for a wine lover that a small grower with few actors selling his wine for a, a very cheap price takes the risk and a classified growth with the power it has would not. It is not understandable. So um, I think everybody will make this move, I hope, at least. I think there is all the knowledge in Bordeaux to do it, even if it's not the easiest place on the planet 
uh, to be organic, but there's all the knowledge. And I think, you know, um, in a sh- again, in a short period of time, it will be like that. Have there been bad moments? Have there been times where you're like, well, that parcel's not doing so well? No, uh, no. I think bad moments because, um, you know, you spray um, a Friday. Between Friday and Saturday, you have uh, 30 millimeters of rainfall and you have to go in the vineyard on Saturday. And, and, uh, and another rain, you have to go in the vineyard on Sunday. Because it's not systemic and you have to go back and spray. Yes. It doesn't just stick around. Nope. But it also doesn't stick around in the soil, in the water, in the people. No. Well, th- that's also something uh, I want to precise. You know, um, I, I hear sometimes, oh, yeah, but uh, you use copper and it's not good. True. In the old days, when um, no chemicals were available, copper sulfides uh, were the only way to fight mildew. But at that time, uh, the knowledge was not as it is today. And the average was close to 15 kilos of copper per hectare per year. Today, even in a vintage like 2013, we are maximum four kilos. In a vintage like 11, much easier, we are less than two kilos, nothing. Copper is, I don't know how to say that in English, in French is oligo-element, it's a mineral, um, it's something that you need, mm-hmm. copper, like other uh, metals, you need it. Yeah. It is dangerous if it's too much, as a lot of things, you know, like wine, if you're doing too much, it's dangerous. If you if you drink, I wouldn't grandma. know. <laughs> and so, um, so I think we we are now able to manage the copper uh, in a very different way that was was in the past. And you think because of more precise methods of delivery, or more precise methods of delivery, better knowledge, um, we can use the different type of coppers. We have very sophisticated tools to spray that are very very efficient, and and also you know the vigor of our, of our vineyard is much lower. So there is naturally an ability to, to fight against the disease. And so the copper is just there to help. But what does that all taste like when you taste the wine? I haven't tried one of the wines in Palmer since it moved to biodynamics. Mm-hmm. To you, what does it taste like? It's, I would not say today that there is a revolution in the start of the wines. It's too early. My feeling is that when I taste a single block, the, or the wine from a single block, I know the block. I know the style of the block. Even you know, when I studied, there was, a, there was a style. But I think that the style is more precise today than it was in the past. So the overall blend is not totally different. But it's like, you know, a big orchestra. Um, If you have a a bad uh, sound system, you hear the music, but you don't hear the instrument. If you have a very good sound system, you will hear very precisely the bass, the drum, etc. I hear better and better all the elements in the final blend. I think that's a really good way of describing how I feel about what I think of as well-done biodynamic wines. Because I feel like I, I see in the spectrum, not just the capital letters, but the lowercase letters of the alphabet mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I taste biodynamic wines. Mm-hmm. It, but it's not so much a fruit-based sensation, but it's a, a vinous sensation. I taste more of the vinous elements mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, no, but I agree. I agree. I agree. Often. And, 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 and that's something very important. So this direction will not produce totally different wines, will not help to produce much better wine. They will just give a better reading of the place. Are you seeing more reduction as you work with more grapes that have been grown biodynamically? No. Same. Same, no. At the same time, you've lowered your levels of sulfur, though. Mm -hmm. We try. Uh, It will be um, quite a long process because... You know, we don't do anything by religion or by philosophy. We do everything to make better wines. So we always want to keep a scientific approach on what we do. 
uh, we started two years ago to work on the sulfites. And there are different stages uh, in, in the winemaking where you use sulfites. The first one is on the fruit themselves. You, usually you, you had sulfites on the fruits, not really to minimize oxidation because on red fruits, it, it's not a big deal. But you use sulfites to make sure that the bacteria will not develop and they will leave enough space for the yeast to, to make the alcoholic fermentation. Uh, last year, we made an experiment. So 2013, we made an experiment. Instead to add sulfites on the fruit, we had yeast just at the beginning, you know, just to make sure that the yeast population will be big enough right from the beginning to block any bacteria development. Oh. It worked okay. It worked very well. And as a result, we saw that after the malolactic fermentation, when we had to stabilize the wine with sulfites, the amount of sulfite that uh, we used was smaller than in the classic one with sulfite on the fruit because the sulfite was not combined as much by the mm -hmm. wine. Well, it's a little bit technique now, but well, to make it short, we thought it was a good move. And this year, 2014, zero sulfites on the fruit yeast right from the beginning. So where are you getting that yeast, I guess I would ask? Today, uh, we use selected yeast. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, we will use our own yeast. You're going to find your own and propagate it. Step by step, step by step. I don't want to do everything in the same time. Sure. At this stage, I think it's much more interesting to reduce the level of sulfites in the wines with the help of yeast that can be used. Once we will be able to control that very well, we will work on our own yeast, and we have an idea how to do that, to use them, etc. I mean, a vintage like 11 uh, at Palmer, 100% indigenous yeast. So we know how to do that. Wines are good, very good, but our, as a result, we had to use a little bit more uh, SO2 sulfites in the wines. So backward, let's work on the sulfites first. Once we will understand what we have to understand, we work on the yeast, you know. Sometimes it's the mistake. If you want, if you try to do everything at the same time, the result is a one in the bottle that will explode or will be a little bit fizzy, like Lambrusco. <laughs> okay. As a gymnast, you can't do all the moves in one one go, right? You yes. Have to yes. Do them in sequence, I guess. Step by step. What other adjustments have you made since you arrived to the farming? Precision. Details, grape receiving area that has changed every year almost, smaller tanks uh, to be more precise. So you're doing smaller parcel vinification yes. so you can take a look at what comes from where. Yes. I told you about the approach in the, in the vineyard and I think that's the most important thing. And, and, you know, we have now two people working with us. One was responsible for all the vineyard research and really responsible for the biodynamic move. Another one uh, was responsible for research in the cellar. Uh, so sulfites is an example. Re reducing sulfites is an example. It's really boiling uh, at Palmer at the moment. Um, no, are those employees of Palmer or are they outside consultants? No, no, no. They're, they're at Palmer. I see. Yeah. So We just have one consultant, Eric Boisneau, who um, basically uh, helps us to blend. I see. I think it's very important to have someone from outside when you blend. Otherwise, uh, you're too much into it, and there's a lack of, um, of openness. You can develop a house palette. Yes. You fail to see the flaws. In it, it's like, I mean, when you have kids, you love them so much, you know them so much, that sometimes you don't see everything. You need the teacher to tell you, hey, look at this. Same story for us. Uh, we know so well our parcels, our wines, that sometimes we really need someone from the outside to say, hey, are you sure that? Oh, yeah, of course. So has the Sapage Cuvée changed over time for either the Alto Ego second wine or the Chateau Palmer first wine? Not really. Um, you know, Chateau Palmer um, is a, a type of unique case in the Medoc. We have a higher percentage of Merlot than most of our neighbors. Same amount of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon uh, with a little touch of Petit Verdot. Old Merlots 
very well located on gravel soil that are usually used for uh, for the Cabernet Sauvignon. I think it's important to keep this um, uh, uniqueness. So no, we we don't plan to change that, but we'll see in the future. You know, maybe with the global warming, we will be obliged to make adjustments. But uh, for now, we want to keep it. And what would be the difference really between the Alter Ego and the Chateau Palmer first wine? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a different set of goals when you approach those two wines? Yes, and that's why I don't like to call it the second wine when I speak about Alter Ego. It's uh, it's, it's a bit more than second wine. It's the second ego. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it it's just uh, Alter Ego means the other me. This is the other Chateau Palmer. What I mean is, you know, traditionally a second wine is a wine made with the young vineyards or all the declassified lots. Those uh, those wines are not used. We we sell them in bulk. Uh, Altago is really a wine that is made with another philosophy. The philosophy uh, behind it is uh, to make a wine that will be approachable in his, uh, younger, you know, earlier, between five and ten years old. So it's really a terroir selection. It's uh, a fruit selection at harvest, and it's um, a different approach in winemaking. Less extraction, lower temperatures, less maceration. Dif- just different approach. That would be, you know, one landscape, the Chateau Palmer landscape, two different paintings. Chateau Palmer, very classic. Altiago, a little bit more contemporary. And perhaps less structured. Of course, less structured. Uh, because, you know, um, a wine with structure needs time to, to integrate everything. Altago is not as powerful as Chateau Palmer, but has a very beautiful, fresh fruit that uh, helps uh, the drinkers to enjoy it after several years. So now I have a better understanding of how Alter Ego is different than Chateau Palmer, and mm-hmm. I have a better understanding of how Chateau Palmer, where you work now, is different than Ornelia, where you worked in the past. But I guess my question would be how is Chateau Palmer different than Chateau Margaux, which is the other? kind of really well-known name in Margot, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the appellation you work in at mm-hmm. Palmer. So how should I think of them as different wines? Two wines from the Margot appellation, two wines known for their femininity, for their elegance, for their precision. Terroirs that are very similar, the two neighbors on the first gravel terraces um, uh, near the river. I think the main difference is the grape varieties mix. Chateau Margot is mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. Palmer is half and half Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, with Merlot that are grown on what we call Cabernet Sauvignon terroir in the Médoc, which is just the best terroir that we have. Old Merlots on deep gravel soils instead to have old Merlots or young Merlots on uh, clay soil makes a big difference. So um, when you think Chateau Margot, you think Margot, of course, finesse, elegance, beautiful purity, very noble. When you sing Chateau Palmer, you sing finesse, elegant, Margot. But there is a velvet character, a velvety character, something that would really embrace your palate, very soft and delicate that comes from the mellows. So it's more of a textural difference, really. Yes, that's what I think. You've been there 10 years, and obviously you've, you've made a number of refinements to the farming and some of the grape handling. But what did the climate throw at you in that 10-year period? How would you assess those vintages in terms of what weather happened? What is for sure is if you look back in the last 20 years in Bordeaux, we had an incredible series of great vintages. Does it come from the global warming? Maybe, but I, I, I'm not sure. Is there anything we can learn from that or we can anticipate Again, too early, because of course, it may be a little bit warmer than it was in the past, but it's a good thing for now. Could it be too warm? Maybe. Could it be too cold? Maybe. If the currents we have in the Atlantic Ocean in the Gulf Stream just stop, the weather will be very different in Bordeaux. Winters will be much cooler and summers could be much warmer on a shorter period of time. More continental, basically. More continental. So that could really change the winemaking approach. But it's impossible to anticipate. We just have to wait. And uh, once we'll be sure of what happened, we'll see what should be done. Sometimes when people are critical of Bordeaux, they say the wines of Bordeaux are different than they used to be, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's partly a global warming situation? For one part, yes. 
for another part, no. I think for another part, uh, it's really um, a winemaking approach and a fashion. It is very clear to me that end of the 80s, mostly in the 90s, as it was in Napa, for example, uh, the Bordelais tried to make bigger wines, riper wines, more extracted wines. Until the time, most of them understood that uh, the fascinating part of Bordeaux is not power and concentration. The fascinating part of Bordeaux is balance between tannin structure, the acidity, and the alcohol level. And to find the right point of balance is really the key for a great Bordeaux. So I think, you know, for a lot of property, uh, they're back to, not to the old style, but to a more balanced and sophisticated wine, to a more balanced and sophisticated style, instead of uh, just uh, the, the bigger, the better. What about freshness? Sometimes I taste Bordeaux that tastes very fresh, even mm-hmm. when they have a lot of age on them. Sometimes mm-hmm. I taste young Bordeaux that tastes fresh, but sometimes I taste Bordeaux that tastes a little tired, mm-hmm. a little bit. Oh, I, sometimes I think overworked. And mm-hmm. I'm not thinking of Palmer here, but mm-hmm. is, it, is it an issue to achieve freshness on a regular basis in Bordeaux as a whole? It's not an issue, it's a decision. Freshness um, is two things, in my opinion. The quality of the fruit, the quality of the aromas, if it's overripe, it's not fresh, it's cooked. And freshness is the level of acidity. Uh, and I think that's another thing about um, overripeness. The level of acidity has dropped. pH were higher uh, than in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Less acidity means less freshness in the wines. And less acidity means more risk to have, you know, Funky aromas like um, uh, what comes from Britain Mises, uh, this uh, horse uh, sweat you said, yeah, uh, leathery, uh, le- yeah, uh, type of aromas. I think acidity is a key in the Bordeaux wines, a really a key. A vintage like 2013, not a great vintage, but there are good wines with a higher level of acidity than in the 90s. And I'm sure that those wines will age well and they will be surprisingly good uh, in, in several years because acidity is a very important thing for wine to make sure that it will age well. What are some of the other vintages you think, boy, I'd like to check in on that Chateau Palmer in 10, 20, 30 years that you've made? If I had to mention just one, I would definitely mention uh, 2011. 2011 is a vintage that is a little bit forgotten because it came after the fabulous 2010. Usually forgotten, not sometimes, mostly forgotten. Mostly forgotten. Either by people who like nine or people who like 10. And and I think it's a strange vintage because it was a very early vintage. It was a very dry uh, spring, a mild summer, but an early harvest. The style of the wine is not the classic style of an early harvest. It's not a, a super ripe. It's a very classic style. And at Palma, we had a hailstorm beginning of June that did not damage the quality and the potential of the crop, but just lowered the yield. So as, as a result, we did um, half a normal yield, 20 hectoliters per hectare. And was that fairly localized? Did that affect very, you, but very not others? Very localized. And so um, I just had a, an Alter Ego 11 uh, at lunch with friends, and um, I love the style of it. The Palmer is even better. It's a very classic, very deep, sophisticated. It's not a flamboyant style, uh, but I'm I'm convinced that this wine will be a killer if we are able to give it enough time. But are there enough bottles to give it enough time? I guess if the yields are lower, there's probably there are not a lot of bottles, but there are few in the market, and I've, I have few left at the winery because. Uh, I, I had the feeling that this wine, you know, should be kept in good conditions to be offered to the real wine lovers in several years. And what's the market reception been like? Has the owner seen what they wanted to see in terms of Palmar being more broadly accepted as top tier? And um, uh, Chateau Palmer wines, I think, you know, it, uh, the market recognized that Palmer is a fabulous place with a very strong identity and personality. And I think the market recognized also that 
we are more consistent than we used to be in the 70s or the 80s, or even in the 90s in a way. But it's, that's the fascinating thing about job. We have to make better wine every year, and we also have to let the wine lovers that those wines are better every year. So it's a production, it's also an exchange, a discussion. We have to, not to teach, but yeah, to explain what we try to do and what we try to achieve. It's a great time for Chateau Palmer at the moment, but it's not finished. We still have a lot of things to understand and we have a lot of things to try to do better. Thomas Derue of Chateau Palmer, thank you for continuing the conversations about the wines that you're making in Margot here today. My pleasure. Thomas Derue of Chateau Palmer. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.